I don't know if you um, have favorite commercials that you think back to. Uh, if, if you're at least my age or close to my age, you won't forget the first time you saw the Where's the Beef commercials. They, they were shocking kinds of caught your attention. One of my favorite uh, older commercials was uh, one where somebody took an egg and held it up to the camera and said, um, this is your brain. And then you saw the frying pan, they broke the egg in there, and this is your brain on drugs. And that was a, a shocking kind of, of image. When I, I don't know how old that was when I saw that, but it just stuck with me. Um, it was part of that campaign, just say no, just say no to drugs. We, we remember that campaign. And um, it's interesting to me, as much as television and media and all the rest have tried to drill that message into our head, the just say no message, it doesn't seem to have quite stuck. I mean, just say no should be our training mantra for everything that is harmful to us. But society is a bit inconsistent with the message. Just how harmful does a practice have to be before we are willing to just say no to it? I mean, it was just say no to drugs, right? But, but, but what about marijuana? And what about gambling? And what about stealing? And what about psychedelic mushrooms? I mean, some of these have some value, right? I mean, there are medical uses for marijuana, it turns out, and states have legalized its uses far beyond that. And, and gambling is an accepted form of entertainment in some homes. I mean, it's just a little bit of harmless fun, right? The real problem really is when you do these things to excess, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with a little wine, but, but when wine causes me to lose my inhibitions and I start to injure the people around me or abuse family members or, or drive on the highways or, or try to do my job impaired, I mean, where is the line where we just say no? Where, where's the line? And when you get right down to it, how do you know if something really is right or wrong? I mean, there is a whole segment of our society that honestly believes that if you don't get caught doing something wrong, then no real crime has been committed. Things aren't right or wrong based on the actions themselves. Only being caught makes something wrong. That's messed up thinking. But I think it's a result of a criminal justice system that is adversarial in nature. The truth about a case is not really as important as what can be proven. And if it can't be proven that anything wrong has been done, then I didn't do anything wrong, since I can't be held accountable for it. Let me be clear. If you steal money from the bank but get away with it, you are no less a thief than the guy who is in jail. Juries have the power to declare you innocent if you are guilty. Juries only decide punishment and visible innocence or guilt. Regardless of what any jury believes, every defendant knows the truth of their actions, whether they admit it to themselves or not. 
That's why it's so important to have a firm grasp on what is right and what is wrong. I like to read mystery novels. A popular theme in some of those stories is the, the victimless crime theme. Some good guy who's a little bit shady, but not all that bad, figures out a way to steal money either from the mob or for some drug cartel. He works his magic, sets up his scam, and in the end manages to wire all the money from some criminal's bank account into his own untraceable account in the Cayman Islands somewhere. And our sense of justice is satisfied because the bad guys lost the money and the money the hero stole was tainted anyway, so somehow it doesn't count and we're not revolted by this theft. In fact, we cheer that the bad guys lost and end up celebrating the theft. This is twisted. The hero is a thief. Perhaps we could talk about this sensible if the hero gave the money back to the authorities who find a way to return the money to the people from whom it was stolen in the first place or the communities that were, were robbed of those funds. Then the story would become a recovery of stolen property story. But that's not what most of the mysteries I read are. Some guys live in high off of stolen money from the mob. And it's twisted. Romans 7 is about right and wrong and our battle with it. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 14. Romans 7. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if what I do, now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that... I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Last Sunday I talked about the fact that we are either living as slaves to sin or we have decided to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. That means living in obedience to the teachings of Jesus. 
Paul specifically said back in chapter 6, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And so being Christian is all about living according to the teachings of Jesus. It isn't follow Jesus when convenient and don't get caught. It isn't do whatever you want as long as other Christians don't find out about it. It isn't do whatever you want as long as nobody else gets hurt. It isn't do what feels right to you. It's none of those things. It is learn the teachings of Christ and do them. Learn the teachings of Christ and do them. Whether convenient or not, whether comfortable or not, whether pleasing or not, learn the teachings of Christ and do them. We must make a decision to follow Jesus in this way, to learn his ways and to do them. So that decision, will I obey Jesus, is step one. But once that decision is made, the battle isn't over. Sin still operates everywhere around us. This is true because as Christians, we live in a time between two ages. Christ has come, so a new age has been ushered in. The kingdom of God has begun. He has won the victory against sin and death by his resurrection. But even though the second age has come, the kingdom of God has come, the enemy hasn't fully surrendered yet. Though Satan is mortally wounded, we live in a place of continuing frustration and battle. Even though the victory is a foregone conclusion, the final mopping up action isn't completed. I think perhaps we live in the place where the enemy is most desperate and the fighting is hardest, where the enemy refuses to admit he's defeated, where he's still inflicting casualties. And so Paul launches into this important discussion of what it's like to live in this in-between time when the kingdom of God has come but is not yet fully realized on earth. As people who are sometimes confused, often tempted, and sometimes succumbing to temptation, it's good to know that truth. The good that I want to do, I do not do. What is that about? I've made up my mind to do good, but my performance does not match my intention. Now, this is pretty easy to relate to, isn't it? I mean, how many times have I said to myself, I'm not going to do another thing before I pray this morning? And then the phone rings, and an, an urgent email pops up on my cell phone, and, and I'm off, and one thing leads to another, and it's 12.07, and it's lunchtime, and I'm still prayerless. I want to do good, I've rejected sinful ways, but I don't always follow through in my decisions. Maybe I want to be an encourager, but Susie Jones asked me whether I saw Miss So-and-so talking to Mr. Wobegon, and well, I actually did see them together, so it's just news if I respond, and, and you know, just reporting the facts, so that's not really gossip, and, and one thing leads to another, and before I know it, the whole conversation is completely inappropriate. Paul says, with my mind, I choose to serve God, 
but my flesh is still a slave to sin. Does that mean my body is evil? No, that's not what he's saying. Flesh here refers to my fallen sinful nature. Paul is saying our will is conflicted by our fallen sinful nature, by our own inward selfishness. Sometimes the natural drives that God has placed in our bodies lead us or encourage us to fulfill them in ways or in quantities that constitute overindulgence. You understand, God has given us appetites for food, for self-protection, for intimacy, for survival. No common act of God's grace will ever take those drives away from you because they were given to you as gifts. So why would God want to remove them from us? However, God has placed limitations on their fulfillment. Our drive for survival, taken to an extreme, can lead to hoarding. Perhaps it goes like this. I need money to survive. The more money I have, the easier it is to survive. If I hoard money, maybe I can earn enough not to have to rely on the money I am currently making to survive. If I get injured, I will still survive. Soon the hoarding becomes my reason for living and working. And I no longer trust God for my daily bread. I'm greedy and self-reliant rather than God-reliant. All of our natural desires have the potential to be distorted. In the areas of natural drives, this, this is an area for discipline. Otherwise, drives taken to the extremes to the point where there are no longer gifts that enrich us, become drives that enslave us. And so we have to embrace discipline. This is the teaching of Jesus. Remember, one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the things that flows from our love for one another, is the discipline of self-control, right? The only way you read that is discipline. If you look more closely at what Paul's saying here in Romans 7, though, Paul is wanting, he is yearning for, for all of us, deliverance from the body of death. Deliverance from this sinful nature that it has the power to enslave us, the power to keep us from doing the very things we want to do. He's making the case that our flesh is conspiring against us to draw us toward the improper fulfillment of our desires and that our enemy is constantly tempting us to walk away from God. Paul wants freedom from the pull of our fallen human nature, that pull which keeps us self-absorbed and self-centered. Paul puts his finger right on the battle that wages in many of us. We've chosen to follow God, but we are tempted to sin, and sometimes actually sin. And sin causes us pain and despair. And in time, if not remedied, we're tempted to give up on the Christian way because we find this battle just too hard to deal with. Most of the time, we find it hard because we intuitively understand that following Christ means giving up my own right to do whatever I want to do. So the real struggle is this. I want to follow Christ and I want to do what I want to do. And the thing that makes Christianity hard is 
I have to choose to obey Christ against my own wishes. And this is hard. But please don't forget, God wants our victory to be complete. He wants us to live victorious, wholesome, meaningful Christian lives. If he were to save us and then never offer us the power to please him, he would, in effect, be introducing us to the most miserable life imaginable. Don Quixote is accused of the very same thing. If you know the story of Don Quixote, the would-be knight who was going to right the, all the wrongs of the world, you know that he chooses a kitchen maid of ill repute to be his aristocratic lady of inspiration. By believing in this woman, he elevates her to heights she had never known possible. And she can believe in herself if someone else can believe in her. But then reality breaks in on her and she sees herself for the low, ill-mannered, despicable creature she really is. And she says, you have shown me the sky, but what good is the sky to a creature who will never do better than crawl. You are the cruelest of all. Do you understand the charge that's being made here? If someone sets lofty goals and, and high expectations, but does nothing to provide the resources to reach them, that is unkind at best and cruel at worst. We've been invited by Christ to obey him. But if no way, no possibility of obeying him is provided, why make the command? Why, does, why are we commanded in Scripture to be holy as God is holy if it's not even possible for us to do it? I don't think God would treat us that way. He wouldn't say to us, well, freedom from sin is all, no, freedom from guilt is all I'll provide. Your bodies, your lives, well, they'll be drawing you into sin for the rest of your life. Just deal with it. You will know my high standards, but you will never be able to reach them. Get used to sinning because you're going to be doing it every day in thought, word, and deed. That sounds like a miserable life. That sounds like being condemned to be on the roller coaster of trying to please but never measuring up. Never being able to do the very things he commands us to do. But why command if there's no possibility of fulfillment? Paul asked the question this way. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And verse 25 is his answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. John's going to write in one of his letters in 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. What does it mean to be victorious over sin in this lifetime? It means, first of all, an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. Abide in me. Stay connected to the vine. 
That's foundational. It means reaching a decision point in my life where I have rejected sin, understanding that it means I must obey Christ. I mean, I don't have the option to obey him and do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. That those two are mutually exclusive. That I'm going to have to choose to obey Christ. And then, the third thing that's absolutely fundamental is I must fully engage life in the Spirit. The key is life in the Spirit. Otherwise, in the Christian realm, we're forever generating checklists so that we can gauge our behavior and pronounce ourselves good. And that's not what Christianity is. It's not about fulfilling any checklist. It is about obeying Christ and engaging life in the Spirit. That's who we must be. And if you've read Romans a time or two, you know when we get to the next chapter, we're going to talk all about what it means to live life in the Spirit. I read an author recently who made this comment about this passage. Anyone who doesn't walk by the Spirit fosters a false theology. What does he mean by that? If you're pretending to live a Christian life, if you are witnessing to walking as a Christian, but do not live life in the Spirit, your life is misrepresenting the Christian life completely. Because life by the power of the Spirit, life in the Spirit, is quintessentially what we mean when we say Christian. We receive the Holy Spirit when we were saved. We walk with that Spirit in fellowship and communication with Him. And we please Christ by obeying the Spirit. That's our task. I don't have any idea how the Spirit speaks to us in the terms of this chapter. We, we'll all be hearing different things. It may be the Spirit is, is putting his finger on a particular part of our lives. It may be the, the Spirit is, is convicting us or accusing us of a particular thing and that, and that our next response has to be to confess that he's right, that we're wrong, that we need transformation in a particular area of our life. It may be that the Spirit's saying, this is exactly what you're doing, and this is the exact source of your joy. I, I don't know what the Spirit might be saying to each of you. This is what I know. That I need to continually pray, search my heart, O oh God, and see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in your pathways to your glory. I have to continually bring myself before the Spirit for inspection so that I'm able to live life in the Spirit. So I guess that is what I'd invite you to do this morning, to invite the Spirit once again to speak so that we can be delivered from that fallen humanity, that, that nature that drives us to disobey Christ, and that by the presence of the Spirit in our life, we can be so filled with Him 
that we're actually able to please him. Pastor, are you saying that we're going to live perfectly ever after that? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's possible to please him every single day. That the choice is yours. That the resources are his. And we will be successful to the extent that we rely on his resources, his power, and his presence to fulfill his commands for us. So have we opened our hearts to the Spirit? Have we proclaimed our desire to obey him? And will we do the things he calls us to do? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in these moments of quiet reflection, we invite your Spirit again to speak into our hearts, to search us, There are areas where we are still not obeying you. Help us to understand and discern. Help us to confess. By your grace, forgive us. And help us to step closer to you. And receive from you the power to be victorious Christians. We know that in ourselves we'll fall short. But we know that nothing is impossible for you. So you are our confidence. Help us this day and each day to walk with your spirit. To be empowered by your spirit to rejoice in your spirit. And by your grace, as we learn more and more at your teaching, enable us to obey you with hearts surrendered to you. This we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you sing with me in closing? I need you, oh, I need you every hour. I need you, my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. I need you, oh, I need you every hour. I need you, my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. forget the promise of our Lord that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of the Lord's rise. Would you stand to receive the benediction? 
And now may the God of all mercy enable you to do all that is pleasing to him according to his will. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.